Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights Podcast, where we talk about interesting recent work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. All right, so today our guest is Kelvin Gu, who is a student at Stanford that's advised by Percy Liang. He's done work on semantic parsing and on knowledge graph inference and a number of other different things. And today we're going to talk about a paper of his titled Generating Sentences by Editing Prototypes. Thanks for joining us, Kelvin. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. Really appreciate that you're doing this NLP podcast. Uh, it's hard to find something in this category. <laughs> I'm glad you like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, can you uh, tell us about uh, what this work is doing? Like, Just a simple overview of what the paper is about. Yeah, sure. So the paper is called uh, Generating Sentences by Editing Prototypes, and the title pretty much gives the main idea. Uh, the main idea here is that we're trying to generate sentences, and most existing methods basically generate one word at a time from left to right, although I can think of a few very recent exceptions to that. And we're proposing a new way to generate sentences, where you basically grab a sentence that you've already seen before and edit it into a new sentence. Um, and the main intuition there is just that we thought it would be easier to start with an existing sentence that's already grammatical, already semantically coherent, and then just tweak it a little bit rather than starting from scratch. Um, so that's the high-level idea. And then uh, the sort of second idea in there is that we then want to be able to control how that editor edits the sentences. So we try to model the variation over edits using an edit vector so that you could say, like, if I set that edit vector to the word pizza, you'd, the editor would try to find a way to incorporate the word pizza into the sentence without changing the meaning of the sentence too much. To summarize, then, if I want to generate a sentence, I have some corpus of sentences that I've already used as training data or something that I've collected somehow, and then I find a sentence in there, and then I edit it somehow, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, how do you actually get a probability distribution over language given this process? Yeah, uh, so the kind of generative model, uh, if, if you think of this as a language model, basically you first choose uniformly from your corpus of sentences, you pick a sentence, and then uh, what happens uh, mechanistically basically is that sentence gets fed into a sequence-to-sequence -sequence model with attention uh, that then puts a probability distribution out over new sentences, which tend to be small variations of the sentence that you fed in. And so uh, do, when you actually want to generate, like, compute perplexity or something that can actually generate sentences, I guess if you're just generating, you can just sample a sentence and only just pick one. Uh, yeah. But if, if I want to do something that's a little bit more general, I'd want to, like, have, like, actually sample multiple sentences and yeah. combine their probabilities to, somehow to get actual probability distributions over words at each step. Yeah, so if you actually wanted to... Um, compute like the full perplexity under this model that I just described, um, you would actually want to marginalize out over all the possible sentences you could retrieve. Uh, but because of the way the editor works, it basically is only going to edit sentences into things that are relatively close by in terms of some sort of edit distance. And so really you only have to sum over the sentences that are actually close to the target sentence whose probability you want to evaluate. So how do you pick the set of uh, sentences that, that are close to the target sentence? Um... Oh, yeah. Um, so I guess now we're sort of getting into how to do like the perplexity evaluation. Well, um, before we get into evaluation, we... Yeah, yeah, maybe uh, we like, back you, up. And... Yeah, how do you train this thing? 
Uh, okay. And, and so this is, this is a problem also at training time, right? If, if I want to actually train the model, I need to have some scalable way of actually uh, computing the distribution so that I can like do a cross-entropy loss over my model's distribution versus my target distribution, right? And so if your distribution is summing over your entire corpus, you're going to have a you're going to have problems. Yeah, yeah. So that that would be computationally expensive. And uh, so maybe I'll back up and explain the whole training procedure, kind of give a quick run through it, and then we'll sort of dive into the details about Great. Uh, where things are expensive and how we fix that. Um, okay, so kind of the first step is a data pre-processing step. You get a big corpus of text. Um, in our case, we looked at one billion word, the language modeling corpus, and we also looked at Yelp reviews because we thought that they would have a lot of kind of reusable sentence structure. So you get that big corpus of text, and then you find all pairs of sentences that are close to each other by some edit distance. Um, in our case, we used Jacquard distance, which is just a measure of word overlap. Um, and you can really, you can get these pairs whatever way you want. Um, then the second step is you train your editor. And I'll give sort of a naive version first, just because I think it might actually be uh, good enough for many applications and just simpler to understand, and then I'll kind of give the full version. Um, so once you have these sentence pairs, what you could really just do is train a vanilla sequence-to-sequence -sequence model going from one sentence in the pair to the other sentence in the pair. And that would be a very basic version of the neural editor. Um, you'd be able to feed in a sentence, and it would give you a randomly edited other sentence. Um, and in the paper, uh, we show that if you do that training procedure, it's, um, it's a lower bound on the um, generative model that we described earlier, where you uniformly pick a sentence and then edit it. Um, so I think for some applications, that might be just good enough if you're just looking for sort of roughly semantically similar sentences. Um, but what it doesn't give you, it doesn't sort of give you the full model in our paper in that you can't actually control the direction of the edits. So to actually control the edits, we introduce this idea of an edit vector that's latent. And to train that, we get into this um, variational training objective. Um, and I can sort of dive into the details of why we did this uh, VAE thing. Does that sound good? Yeah, can I just repeat back to you how I understand this and you can tell me if I'm right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, so the model, uh, you want a distribution over language, right? And you're marginaling, yeah. marginalizing out two different things. Yeah. Uh, I guess the, the, because the model goes from a prototype to the language you're trying to generate uh, and you don't know which prototype you should pick, that's one of the latent variables in your model. Yeah, and then, exactly. And then your generation model also has a vector that controls the edits, as you talked about, and that's another latent variable. So we have to marginalize right. over both of these. Right, right. And uh, I guess now is... Um, the nitty-gritty details, right? How, how you actually do these marginalizations. How, yeah, yeah. How, do, how does that work? Um, yeah, so uh, to kind of answer your first question from earlier about like how do we marginalize out overall sentences, um, the reason that this lower bound, so there's sort of two lower bounds, one for each latent variable in the model, so the first latent variable being the prototype and the second latent variable being the edit vector, um, the, the way we deal with the marginalization over the prototype is that we actually just select sentences that are close to the target sentence that you're trying to predict. Um, and so that sum is naturally not a sum over all the elements, and that lower bound comes from there. Um, how we do the lower bound over the edit vector, I can kind of talk about next. 
Um, so there's this variational autoencoder involved. And it's always kind of hard to explain VEs. I'll try to give like the intuitive explanation that I have for it. Um, so let's say you have some sentence A in your data set and it's close to sentence B and sentence C and sentence D. So then in your training examples, you're gonna get a bunch of pairs that look like A goes to B, A goes to C, A goes to D. And when you just use basic seek to seek training on that, the model gets confused about what you want. Like, do you want A to be edited into B, C, or D? And because it has no reason to prefer one over another, it'll just put probability mass over all three of them. But we want to actually control the editor so that we can pick B or C or D, depending on what we want. Um, and so the main idea is that for each training example, um, like A goes to B, we're going to augment it with this extra edit vector. Uh, we're going to assume that we didn't observe it, but it was there, and it gives the model a hint about what kind of edit we want. Um, so if A goes to B, the hint should somehow tell the model that it should be outputting B and not C or D. Um, and then the question is, what should that hint be? So the hint should, in our case, we decided the hint should tell you which words to insert and which words to delete. Um, and if you have a pair of sentences, you can just deterministically compute which words got inserted and which words got deleted. Um, we dropped like stop words and we also lemmatized, so this isn't quite as um, rigid as you might think. Um, and then at a high level, the edit vector in our model is basically just a sum of the word vectors that you inserted and a sum of the word vectors that you deleted. And there's some noise added on top. And that noise is kind of uh, where I can sort of introduce the variational lower bound. Um, so we've got this variational training objective that has two terms. Um, the first term is this thing that they usually call the reconstruction loss. And it says, if I give you this hint about what edit I want, um, how much log probability do you put on outputting the right thing? Um, and then there's the second term called the KL penalty, which is like a KL divergence and it penalizes you for giving the hint. So if you give a very strong hint, the penalty is very large. And if you give a very weak hint, the penalty is small. Um, and what do I mean by like strong hints versus weak hints? So the hint is basically the sum of the word vectors that you're going to insert concatenated with the sum of the word vectors that you want to delete. Um, and to make that hint weaker, you basically add noise on top of that. So you can imagine that if you add tons of noise to that vector, you've basically washed out all the original information in the hint, and so it's very weak. Um, and what the KL penalty is doing is it's comparing the distribution of the hint after the noise has been added with like a totally uniform distribution. Um, so when those two end up being the same, the KL penalty is zero. Um, so that's the variational training objective. And uh, the way that mechanistically it actually get learns, uh, gets learned is that you basically sample a hint, um, hold it fixed, and then you do sort of a update on the sequence-to-sequence -sequence model that looks just like a supervised update. And the KL penalty has this like closed form in, in some mathematical expression that we put in the paper, and you can take gradients with respect to that. That was a really nice intuitive explanation. Thanks. <laughs> that, that's really helpful. Awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. I had some. Uh, so I, I'll get back to my questions before. So when you when you restrict your uh, set of sentences that you set of, set of prototypes, doesn't mm -hmm. this give your model an advantage over just like a regular model that just tries to generate one word at a time when it comes mm -hmm. to computing its perplexity? Because it already knows like what are 
close by sentences to work from? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So it, it would seem that when we're computing the perplexity, we're cheating because we can look at the target sentence, right? And um, part of the model involves looking at the target sentence, computing that hint, and then giving it to um, giving it to the, the editor. So the part about the variational training uh, objective uh, or the variational lower bound that we're optimizing, the sort of theoretical result about it is that it's actually a lower bound on how well your model would do if it did not receive the hint at all. And the reason that is is because in the, recon the reconstruction loss, um, the model gets the hint, which is unfair. But then there's the KL penalty, which penalizes you. It sort of forces you to pay for the cost of the hint. And um, mathematically, once you add that penalty on, um, it's sort of guaranteed to be a lower bound on the, true mo the model's true perplexity. So you're reporting then in, in your table, you're reporting just a lower bound. Yeah, so our, or actually from perplexity's point of view, it's an upper bound, sorry. It's a lower bound on the, um, on the, like, the log likelihood. Interesting. I might have to think about this a little bit more. Yeah, maybe another way I can put it is, so you've got, you've got the log likelihood under the model. Um, and what I mean by that is like the model that's following the generative process where it just uniformly samples a prototype and then it samples an edit vector from the edit prior. So the edit prior doesn't actually get to look at the output. So under that model, there's some perplexity. Um, but with the VAE, you can't actually compute that perplexity um, in sort of closed form or just directly. And so what you can get is you can get um, the uh, variational lower bound of the perplexity. Um, and that does involve looking at the hint, but the math sort of guarantees that that thing is always worse than the actual perplexity. That's, re that's really interesting. Uh, I, I apparently need to look more at the, at the math of these things. But so it sounds then like what you're saying is if you actually were to do the really expensive thing and actually yeah. sum over every sentence in, in yeah. your corpus, you would get a better number than what we see there. Yes, like that, yeah. You, you can prove this mathematically. Right, right. Uh, so it's two sums. It's like a sum over all the prototypes, and then you have to integrate over all possible edit vectors, which we wouldn't want to do. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> just because we can't. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's, that's interesting. So uh, how well does this, does this actually work in practice? Uh, yeah, so I can sort of give, I can read some examples of the sort of edits that you get. I think they're sort of interesting to look at. Um, one place is, uh, one of the examples is um, we had a Yelp review that said, quick place to grab light and tasty teriyaki. It edits that into this place is good and a quick place to grab a tasty sandwich. Um, I think that example is sort of interesting because it maintains a lot of the syntactic structure, but it did change teriyaki to sandwich. So Disclaimer, this is not um, just a paraphrase model. This actually will edit your sentence um, into potentially something else, depending on what edit vector you feed it. Um, some other interesting kind of experiments that we did, um, I guess, first of all, the sort of quantitative result from this is that um, in terms of perplexity, uh, you can get pretty good perplexity on this task using um, this approach. Uh, so if we compare it against just a plain neural language model um, that generates from left to right, and uh, we looked at the sort of examples that the 
our sort of neural editing approach does well on versus the sort of examples that the traditional uh, neural language model does well on. And um, they, they work well on different sets of examples. So when you actually define a language model that's a mixture of these two approaches, you get overall better perplexity than you would get with either one of them alone. Um, and it seems to be the case that the neural editor does especially well on some of the longer sentences that have a lot of uh, neighbors in the training set. And that's kind of as you would expect, because it basically is able to make small tweaks to um, common sentence structures that, that get used a lot. That's interesting. Can, can we dig a little bit more into this edit vector? So you said that you chose, uh, you, you computed essentially deterministically plus some noise, an edit vector uh, that is just the difference in words that are added and subtracted from the prototype to the, sen the target sentence, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, what are the drawbacks of this particular choice? Yeah, um, so I think it's a very uh, lexical hint about what sort of changes you might want to the sentence. One thing that earlier in the project we really wanted to try and capture as well is like maybe we should have some sort of edit that would allow you to do a passive active transform or um, negate the sentence or something interesting like that. Um, I think extensions like that are possible. Um, the way that we think you could go about doing this is basically right now the um, in the sort of variational training objective, we've got this Q function or this uh, thing that we call the approximate edit posterior. And it's the part of the model that's taking the diff between the two sentences and saying, oh, these words were added and these words were deleted. Um, it can also do other operations, such as if it could recognize a passive active transform, it could say, oh, between these two sentences, there was a passive active transform. And you could add that into the hint as well. Um, as long as you can embed it in some way, into the hint and then add noise, um, you can put that into your latent vector as well. But it does require you having the machinery to recognize what the difference was. Right, so if I can hand code some kind of uh, language recognizer, right? Then, yeah. and additionally, have some way to embed it, then, yeah. then I can compute this. Uh, what, can, I, can I learn this function? Is there a problem with that? Yeah, um, so the earlier work on VAEs um, really did try to just completely learn that function. Um, so they would give some sort of neural network model access to both the input sentence and the output sentence and let it sort of compute a diff in neural network space. Um, and one of the things that, at least folk knowledge-wise, people have found is that it's very hard to get that model to train well. Um, one of the things that happens is uh, the model initially has a very weak encoding of the diff between the input and the output. And so that, that hint that it produces is not very useful to the sequence-to-sequence -sequence model. And the sequence-to-sequence -sequence model ends up just ignoring the hint. Um, uh, and once it stops using the hint, then if you look at the uh, variational objective, there's that KL term, which penalizes you for the hint. And the, the training basically says, oh, whatever, this hint's not useful at all. I'm just going to make it totally noise and completely optimize the KL part of the objective. And then it's just going to use the sequence to sequence model, just like a normal sequence to sequence model. 
Um, so it's kind of hard to prod these models into learning interesting and useful hints. And I think it's still like a, an interesting direction to look into. So pretty early on, we decided we wanted a very structured hint that the model would just be able to do something with. Interesting. Could you start out with the hint that you hard-coded and, uh, and yeah. have that be like a, a good initialization of some learned model? Or yeah, like, I think, like penalize some regularization so that you're at least close to this thing? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And we are actually looking at some of these ideas right now. Like we're trying to get a bit farther away from using lexical similarity as the, um, as the sort of implicit distance metric that we're using. Um, like one intuition that we have about this approach, and I think this is um, really do a lot to um, my co-first author, Tatsu. He's like a big fan of semi-parametric statistics. Um, you can think of approaches like k-nearest neighbors or kernel density estimation. In those approaches, like you look at a point that you want to predict and you just say, well, what training examples are nearby? And let me take their predictions and just average them together. Um, and you can do that if you're just predicting a scalar, but you can't do that if you're trying to predict a sentence. And what we're trying to do is like kind of do the analog of k-nearest neighbors for sentences and structured prediction. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And cool. yeah. yeah. So what are some applications of, of this way of doing language modeling? Uh, like potentially what, what kind of tasks can we include this kind of language model in? Yeah, um, so I'm actually most excited about extending this stuff to the conditional generation case where you've got some sort of context like if you're in a dialogue, somebody has said a few things already, and now you want to generate a sentence that's conditioned on that context. Um, I think dialogue applications like customer service, where people are saying almost the same thing over and over again, could be quite nice. Like, you know, I'm so sorry that your product was like not shipped on time. And then you just want to like edit the name that you're referring to or like the product that you're referring to. Um, it kind of gets into this territory where templates would have almost gotten us there, but then maintaining a sophisticated set of templates is actually pretty hard in practice. Um, so you'd like to be able to just lightly edit things. Um, yeah, another, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it sounds like a hard thing to do there is getting a prototype though, right? Like the You had a relatively easy time in perplexity uh, when, when computing perplexity because you knew the target you were trying to generate and you just had to calculate the probability for it. Whereas in, a, in an actual real dialogue, uh -huh. How do I get a prototype? Uh, right? you like, mean, there's no target to condition on. I have to generate that myself, right? So how do I get it? Oh, yeah. So I think um, this this seems to rise because like we're now in the conditional setting, maybe, and it's, it's not so clear where the prototype comes from. Uh, one thing we've been thinking about, we haven't done this yet, is let's say you already had um, a retrieval system that you trained on a bunch of dialogue response pairs. Um, you could take a new input, get something from the retrieval system, uh, and then compare what the retrieval system outputted versus the gold sentence. And if the retrieval system is not completely overfit, what it returns is not gonna be exactly the same as the gold sentence, but it's going to be hopefully close. And so that output and the true gold sentence becomes an edit pair that you can then train on. So then what your editor would be learning is basically how to fix up the output of the retrieval system. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking more like how do I generate without a gold target at all? 
Oh, I, like I, just I, at test time? Yeah, and I, I guess in that case you just sample from your corpus, right? But uh, but but in the conditional case, you want to sample given some conditional vector, right? Yeah. So in the conditional case, you would basically get your context, like maybe some of the earlier things that the customer said, and then you run your retrieval system. You get a bunch of possible responses back, and you could either just take the top one and edit it, or you could um, sample them and edit it. And in this case, you would want to actually condition the editor on the context too, so that it like right. uh, knows who it's talking to. Right. Yeah. The the I guess. In lang in if you want to do machine translation or anything, the tricky thing is is deciding how do I get the prototype in in this setting when I'm actually at test time trying to produce something. Right, right. Yeah, but yeah. if you stick to tasks where there is like a notion of prototype and like we can get a sense of this by looking at previous examples, I think that makes a lot of sense. In fact, I um, I'm I'm pretty sure that. Uh, most of the uh, like commercial applications for this uh, actually use prototypes to to generate the next sentence and just uh, fills the slots. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, actually, like one thing that we were thinking about, which would be kind of interesting, is in our current approach, um, we just find all pairs of sentences that are close in in some sort of lexical distance metric. Um, we were thinking that in some applications, you might have like a controlled set of things you actually want to talk about. So you might already have a set of templates, maybe a hundred of them. Um, and then the way we would actually collect the edit pairs is we would take all the actual responses generated by real customer service agents and just map those to one of the templates. Um, so all the utterances are paired up with one of the templates. Um, and the nice thing about that is if you have a hundred templates, you can annotate them with additional semantic information about like, oh, when is this template appropriate? When is that template appropriate? And when you go to generate, you can have explicit control over which sorts of templates you retrieve as the prototype at certain points in time. So if like there's a certain response that you really don't want, you just simply don't retrieve that prototype. And the editor will never start with that as its like starting sentence. Um, Interesting. You could, you could also imagine if you're annotating for a given utterance what its prototype is, you could also annotate the edit. What, if you want to go to more fancy kinds of edit models than just word insertion and deletion, and you're willing to, right. anno you're will you're willing to annotate this, then just annotate something more interesting about the edit from template to... Yeah, template. yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, because what we're really trying to do here is kind of decompose the model more so we can get more interpretability out of it. Um, yeah, and I think that having the prototype gives you a little bit more sense of where the model was coming from. Interesting. So uh, in a previous example you, uh, that we talked about earlier, you said uh, in, a customer service agent might want to um, mention a particular person's name or a product, uh, but your model only uses, say, the most frequent 10,000 words in your vocabulary as its outputs. So actually you probably wouldn't be able to generate a particular product name or a person's name. Uh, but so did you use it, did you try any kind of copy mechanism? Is that just a simple, straightforward um, addition to your model? Yeah, pretty much you can just add a copy mechanism to the editor part. Um, and really you can swap out the sequence to sequence model that we have with any of the latest new cool things that you can use to do sequence to sequence. Um, yeah. Would it make sense to use the, the prototype and edit mechanism to kind of uh, concatenate uh, 
first extract. So if I'm trying, if I'm trying to make a summary, but I don't want to just like put together some of the sentences that uh-huh. put in the original uh, in the original document, can I use uh, first use some uh, extracted summarization method uh, to pick the sentences that are actually important and then use the basically I already have the prototype and then I just need to edit it. Uh, to oh. Get it. Yeah, that's actually a really cool idea that I hadn't been thinking about. I think I think that'd be really interesting as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess I uh, there's no clear way of like defining what the prototype, uh, sorry, what the uh, edit vector would look like there, but uh, we can think about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it might actually be summarization might be one of the better places to use the sort of edit vector we have because um, the 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 lexical elements that you drop kind of lead to you doing some form of sentence compression on the sentence. Um, one of the experiments we did was we, we wanted to kind of look at the properties of the edit vector and, and sort of whether it's actually semantically interpretable. Um, so we looked at this in a few ways. One of them was we took a sentence and we would repeatedly edit it using randomly drawn edit vectors. So you're kind of taking a random walk in sentence space and uh, you can kind of do this thing where you either accept the next thing that happens or you reject it. Uh, and we can kind of incrementally shorten the sentence over a few steps. And each of the points along that path are very uh, highly highly similar sentences. Yeah, that's pretty uh, cool. Yeah. Was there anything interesting you want to tell us about from your experiments on querying the semantics of this edit vector? Um, let's see. So one thing that we are still trying to think about, um, which is sort of full disclaimer, is that this model doesn't uh, just generalize to new domains of text. So just because it is editor doesn't mean that it can edit any form of text. We've noticed that if you train it just on the Yelp corpus, for example, and then you go and you try to edit some newswire text, um, you know, you'll start with some event about Wall Street stocks and then it'll sort of bias itself towards making some kind of comment about the Wall Street stocks or something about food that uh, really isn't desirable. So that, That's really interesting. And actually, I wonder if uh, if you had added a copy mechanism, if it would be less <laughs> to doing that. Yes, um, I'm definitely getting that signal strong and clear from you, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> copy mechanism. I, I, I don't, I, it's just my intuition. I, I wonder if that would actually help this problem. Yeah, yeah. And anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. You were you were telling us something interesting. Uh, sure. Yeah. So that was that was one of the things we were looking at. Um, another experiment that we did was we tried to do um, sentence analogies with this approach, and we're basically trying to do it in the same setup that you do word analogies. So like um, the standard uh, word vector evaluation task, where you have better and best and uh, bad and worse. What we tried to do is we we took all these analogy pairs that are already in the uh, existing evaluations for word vectors, and we tried to find sentences in the Yelp corpus that uh, edit pair. We, we tried to find edit pairs in the Yelp corpus that were different by exactly these words. So um, maybe an example of this would be um, one sentence is I've had better service at Denny's. And then the other one is best service I've had at Denny's. Um, so they're different just by adding uh, worst and subtracting worse. Um, so we tried to see if our model, 
we could give it that edit vector of plus worst minus worst and to see if it could perform that transformation basically kind of make the sentence more extreme um, and it does actually seem to be able to do that to some extent which is kind of interesting does it uh, matter which superlative comparative pair you give it because uh, I was a little confused by this when I read the example, because you have better and best in this actual sentences, but worst and worse in the edit. Yeah, so I think what's interesting about that example is um, it's not actually just inserting um, worst and deleting worse. It's actually taking the word better and converting it to best. Um, I know, and just to be clear, the edit vector you're giving it is you're taking the word vector for worst and the word vector for worst worse and worst. And yeah. that, that is the vector you're giving it. And yeah, that's really interesting. I yeah, guess this makes me think of um, like the intuition behind the glove embeddings that really it's just log PMI counts. And like, uh, I guess it's not just the glove embedding, but like the notion of, of word analogies in vector space in general, that the difference between worse and worst is the same as the difference between best and better. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's interesting that your model can capture that just in the edit vector itself. Like, that's actually kind of interesting to me, just because of the mechanics of, like, this concatenation. You're not even doing anything fancy other than a concat between these two word vectors. Yeah, in fact, I think it's the fact that we're not doing anything too fancy that allows us to kind of lift word vector analogies up into sentence analogies, um, because all the sort of linear properties still hold with that edit vector. Um, uh, may I clarify something? I, I thought that what you you're doing here is uh, fill in the first the first half of the edit vector by the a positive uh, like the worst the the embedding for the word worst and the second half of the edit vector by the negative uh, negative one multiplied by the embedding for worst, which mm -hmm. kind of mimics what you had uh, like the posterior distribution you had for the edit vector. Yeah. Is that what you're doing, or is it just like the distance, like the difference between the two vectors? Oh yeah, it is actually in the format that you described, which is that we're concatenating the insert and the delete. Okay. Um, so actually, yeah, that that's a good point. Um, then we're not doing it in the same way that uh, the word vector analogies would normally have you do it. Yeah. Yeah, and it, yeah, it's just really interesting to me that it, that it works this way. It's almost a little magical. I get I, if. If you were to like really look at the linear algebra, probably it would fall out. But it's just interesting that the model just recovers this. But it's, that's exactly how we define the posterior distribution for the edit distance. So I don't see why this is surprising. That, that's exactly how the edit distance, uh, the edit vector is constructed at train while you're training the model. I, the the interesting thing to me is that it's able to capture the notion of the difference between comparative and superlative in an abstract way that uh, like we, we know that um, word vectors do this. When you do differences between these vectors, uh, they capture word analogies. We know this. But that comes directly from that property of the word embedding. Uh, oh, you're saying, I guess that warrants a question uh, for Calvin, whether you train the embeddings for the words or you take the, word, the embeddings coming from GloVe, which would inherit this property basically. Uh, yeah, so we actually did initialize these with glove embeddings. Um, so I think that that certainly explains part of it. Um, I am actually still a little bit surprised that the model does this myself. <laughs> because 
I could imagine, I could easily imagine that the model would do something such as uh, it would just ignore the deletion of worse because worse is not in the original sentence. And then it would just try to add worst to the to the new sentence. So it might say something terrible, like I've had better worst service at Denny's, um, but it doesn't do that. Um, and I wonder if part of that is just that it has a very strong prior about what sorts of sentences it can produce. And um, better worst is just not something it could produce. And so its best alternative is to is to go for this superlative change instead. But I that's just speculation. It's, how consistent is this? Like, did you you've shown two small examples here? Is can you really reproduce this across a large range of sentences? And um, even just with like comparative versus superlative, can you reliably change this with this edit vector? Yeah. So if you look at the our table of results for the edit vectors. Um, we can do this to some extent, but it's not at the same level of accuracy that Glove does for some of the different categories. Um, like maybe to just give a, to just give, throw some numbers in the air here. Glove is sort of um, 0.8 on certain sort of adjective transformations and our edit vector is 0.4, um, even when you look at the top 10 sentences generated by our model. So. Uh, we're definitely not making the claim that it's at the same strength as Glove. But yeah, I, I agree with you. It's really interesting that you can even do this at all. That's pretty cool. Right. Uh, how about the simpler uh, like um, requirement of if we have if we define the edit vector to be just removing a particular word that appears in the prototype, does it consistently remove it from the output? Or if you add an additional word and just don't remove, remove anything, does it consistently add it? Yeah, we were actually going to add some more experimental results to a re revision of the paper um, showing how consistently we could do that kind of thing. It's actually pretty consistent, um, but we uh, it's not as consistent as it as uh, we could actually optimize it to be, because one of the things that the KL penalty does is uh, in the variational objective is it actually regularizes the model so that it doesn't become overly dependent on the hint. Um, that actually gives it a little bit more flexibility in what it chooses to add and delete. Um, it's good for generalization, but maybe not as good if you wanted fine-grained control of what enters and what leaves. Well, cool. This was a really interesting conversation. I, I think this idea of generating from prototypes instead of just from scratch is really cool and has a lot of potential. Do you Thanks, have any, appreciate it. Do you have any last thoughts before we conclude? Um, yeah, maybe I'll throw a thought out there. I'm uh, really excited about generative models of text, not just for like end goals of uh, the end goal of generating text that a human will consume. I think it's actually a, a really interesting direction for producing more interpretable NLP models. Like if they generate text as an intermediate step uh, in the process of reasoning about other things. And uh, I'm kind of looking into stuff on that right now. I just think it's a really exciting area. Perfect. Thank you very much for uh, awesome. joining us. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for hosting the show.